Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 12, Walk On, Walk Off. Last time, we covered the final days of the review in Rochester, New York, where sickness and cramped living conditions made it feel like being scheduled to work on Christmas Day, like every day. So the Whites and company hauled off to Michigan after a sort of bidding war between the Sabbatarian Adventists there and a group in Vermont. Michigan was clearly the place to be not least because it was on the front lines as the message left New England and followed the rest of the country west, a direction the Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. Mormons, had moved in about ten years earlier, in case you're wondering how that other great American religion is doing. We also talked a little about the first general conference held in Battle Creek in November 1855, where some much-needed steps toward organization happened. Uriah Smith was made editor of the review, while James took a step back from shouldering it all by his lonesome, at least on paper. A publishing committee was set up to oversee the review's finances, so people could hopefully stop accusing James of living the good life on people's donations. Oh, and we also talked about how the Adventists determined that they should keep the Sabbath from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, not from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m., as Joseph Bates had been keeping it. Okay, we're all caught up. I want to begin today by covering the part of that conference we didn't talk about last week, the role of Ellen White. You'll remember that James had made the decision four years before, in 1851, not to publish his wife's visions because he wanted people to know that these Sabbatarian Adventists based their beliefs on the Bible and the Bible alone. At the same time, he published Ellen White's first book, which would be called Early Writings, with an account of her visions thus far. So it wasn't like they were hiding anything. But by 1855, there was concern that maybe they weren't handling this right. Nothing else these Adventists printed reached more people than the review. And if Ellen White really were a prophet, shouldn't they share her visions with the people? So when the review set up shop in Battle Creek that December there was a new direction. James White wrote about how this gift of prophecy was predicted in Revelation to be manifest in these last days. Roswell Cottrell, another editor of the Review, responded to critics, saying, If the visions are not of God, they will surely come to naught. Ellen White heartily approved of this. The new strategy in the Review was essentially, Hey, This is what it is, and you owe it to yourself to check it out for yourself. If she's really a prophet, then we need to listen to her. So go read what she says and compare it with the Bible and figure it out. Again, the emphasis was on the Bible as the basis for what these guys believed, including what they believed about Ellen White. The Bible gave some pretty nifty tests by which we are to make sure a prophet was legit, so, you know, go test her. It was very pragmatic. If what this woman predicts isn't really from God, then it won't come to pass. Simple. With the review better organized to give James a break and a more satisfying position on Ellen White's visions, 1856 was looking to be a very lovely year. James was 34 years old now, Ellen 28, 
They had three boys, Henry, who was eight, Edson, who was six, and little Willie White, a whole 18 months old. And if you've ever lived in Michigan, you know it's cold. But then again, so is Maine and New York, where they came from. So I'm not sure what Ellen White's excuse was, because on Christmas Eve, 1855, she slipped on the ice and seems to have twisted her ankle badly enough that she was on crutches for six weeks in winter. Ugh. Say amen if you've been there, brothers and sisters. But the crutches couldn't dampen the enthusiasm for the Whites. Ellen White referred to the years before Battle Creek as their captivity, which was filled with a want of good food, good clothing, and good sleep. James and Ellen had always been taking turns being sick, and everyone worked 14 to 16 hours a day in Rochester because they had no help. James had been deeply in debt, but now these problems seemed over. Battle Creek was the dawn of a new day. Even the review was doing well. From his new spot at the helm, Uriah Smith cheerfully reported in January 1856 that the review added 130 new subscribers the previous year. Woo-hoo! At first, the Whites rented a house, but the believers in Battle Creek prevailed upon them to buy some property and build a house. On January 8th, they bought a corner lot for $100. But Ellen and James decided they didn't want to live there for some reason, and they sold it to J.P. Kellogg for $105. Two months later, they bought an acre and a half and built the house on Wood Street that you can still find today in the historic Adventist village in Battle Creek. Now, you're probably thinking, hey, weren't they just depressed and poor a few months ago? What happened? Good question. James indeed was in debt, about $1,000 before the general conference of last November, when the group decided to take on that debt and pay him a small salary. So the Whites weren't in the hole anymore, they were just broke. Back in the 1800s, there was no 30-year mortgage that you could get either. If you wanted a house and land, you paid cash. Well, that's what friends are for in this case. One of the biggest reasons that Battle Creek proved to be such a blessing to the Whites were the fellow believers. J.P. Kellogg, Dan Palmer, Cyrenia Smith, those guys. They had a little money, so they helped pay for the review to come and continued to generously support the work in ways beyond money as well. They really are the unsung heroes of these early days. For the first time, the leaders of the movement had real help and support and community. It's really nice to find a place to belong. There were still some scares, however. It was in the spring of 1856 that Willie, now just shy of two years old, was playing with a mop and a bucket in the kitchen while the White's cook, a woman named Jenny, stepped outside to get something. If you're a parent, you know where this is going. When Jenny returned to the house, she found Willie lying still on the floor, soaked. She screamed and ran for Ellen, He's drowned! He's drowned! Ellen asked if the water was hot or cold. Jenny thought for a moment and said it was cold. Ellen told her to go get James and the doctor while she tried to revive her son. She cut off his wet clothes and tried to get the water out of his lungs. When James arrived, a neighbor told him to, quote, take that dead baby out of that woman's hands, end quote. James refused. I, I just would have punched that dude in the face. No, James said, it is her child and no one shall take it away from her, end quote. 
After holding Willie for 20 solid minutes, his eyes finally flickered open. He would be okay, so calm down there, nervous mothers. Some of what would later be very familiar strands of Avenus DNA began forming in these days, too. J.N. Andrews and James White used the review that year to take a stand against tobacco, for instance. One believer from Hastings, Michigan, went so far as to write an article saying that tobacco was idolatry due to its addictive and destructive nature. White wrote in response to a real, or made-up, person who said they couldn't afford the review. James asks if they buy coffee, tea, and tobacco, which cost a lot more than the $2 it took to subscribe to the review every year. James found the use of tobacco revolting. He wrote that such people are, quote, slaves to appetite and lust, who plod along the ditch of morbid appetite, while the family altar is perhaps broken down. Meanwhile, quote, how careful are the parcels of tobacco and kindred poisons laid away, and with what fervent devotion are they visited? Oh, how this looks! My soul sickens, and I turn from the sight. End quote. And that's how he ended that article. Tell us how you really feel, James. The review also published some light-hearted, quirky things as well. In the October 9 issue of 1856, there was a blurb in there about how England's navy cost 300,000 pounds more than the value of all its agricultural land. The title of the blurb was Comparative Cost of Swords and Plowshares, and it seems to suggest that such nations have misplaced priorities and that perhaps they should be paying their farm workers more. Who knows, because they didn't really say what they meant. It just concludes with the cryptic sentence, quote, Great considerations must arise from such a state of things, end quote. Okay. In the same issue, there was also a bit of gossip about how lavish some of these new Methodist churches were, concluding with the line, quote, Whether John Wesley would turn over in his grave at seeing all this, I cannot say, end quote. Thankfully, no one seems to have gone to Wesley's grave to check. The Whites' move to Battle Creek wasn't just to chase an opportunity to move the review. The reasons Michigan was considered at all was, first, because of the enthusiastic and generous believers there, and second, because of its strategic location. The move west was part of the entire country's move west. Americans were making for the frontier, Adventists among them. Notably, E.P. Butler from Vermont and the famous feuding families from Paris, Maine, Edward Andrews and Cyprian Stevens. In all, about 30 Sabbatarian Adventists moved from New England to Iowa. It's important to understand the frenzy for land that was going on in the United States at this time. Tens of thousands of people were heading west for dirt-cheap land and gold out in California every year. By 1850, 200,000 people lived in Iowa, where less than 20 years before, there had been exactly zero. So while these Avenists were moving to the frontier, it wasn't like moving into the mountains to be away from everyone. Sure, it was pretty underdeveloped by eastern standards. But the frontier is where the energy was. It was the birthplace of the American dream. It was manifest destiny. It was wild and dangerous and really hard and a new start for a lot of people. 
These families settled in a tiny town called Wacon. Why Wacon? Who knows? Most settlers initially stayed in the eastern part of Iowa because there were plenty of trees to build with, unlike the flat, flat, flat portions in the rest of the state. Back then, Wacon was a feisty, brand new town. It was named after a Native American ally in the local Winnebago tribe before, you know, they were forced to move to Minnesota. Founded in 1849, the town would spend the next 10 years vying to be the county seat with a neighboring town, Lansing. When Lansing offered to build an $8,000 courthouse, Wacon countered and said they would spend $13,635, so take that, Lansing. And as soon as that extravagant courthouse was built, it had to be vacated when Lansing teamed up with another town and petitioned the legislature to be the county seat. They won. Wacon tried to get it back, and eventually the Wacon sheriff led a posse over to Lansing, forcibly took the county records, and then headed back to Wacon. But, as fate would have it, horsemen from Lansing intercepted them on their way back and reclaimed the records. It wasn't until 1867 that the Iowa Supreme Court firmly and finally decreed that Wacon really was the county seat, and so it has been to this day. Keep fighting the good fight, Wacon. It's hard to say how the town's newest Adventist residents waded into this long-running debate, but their presence couldn't be missed. I mean, there were probably only a few hundred people living there before around 30 Adventists showed up. For some of these Adventists, Wacon was a new start, their farms out east had failed, and there were great incentives to move to the frontier. Wacon became a forward operating base of sorts for the movement, and if I can get ahead of myself a little bit and get off topic, I just want to give a shout out to my fellow pastor and friend, Lou Alfala, who pastors there at the Walk-On Seventh-day Adventist Church. Rock on, bro. Not everyone went west, however. J.N. Bluffborough headed back to New York, where he still lived, with a tent and began setting it up all over the place, preaching his heart out. Last time. We just barely covered this new thing of pitching tents and preaching in them in various places. It is really a distinct Adventist thing, because the only organizations that really pitched tents back then were circuses and animal shows and that sort of thing. Now, William Miller had a big tent, but the old Millerite movement wasn't exactly something you wanted to be connected to. So Loughborough was really the pioneer with these tent meetings, though Joseph Bates had great success with them as well but Loughborough was the first Adventist preacher to use one. When it was purchased and brought to Battle Creek in June 1854, a man named Merritt Cornell was the one who went and actually got it, and he did his share of preaching as well. He teamed up with Loughborough for much of the time. Loughborough and Cornell would preach for three days in Battle Creek, bringing a thousand people in on Sunday. His first topic was on Daniel 2, which is pretty much the first topic of Seventh-day Adventist today. Go figure. And around the time that Loughborough was preaching his heart out in, in the first tent meeting in Battle Creek, James and Ellen were in a train wreck a few miles from Jackson, Michigan. As James and Ellen got to their sleeper car, Ellen felt that she had to change cars. They did, and a good thing too, because that car broke up as the train jumped the rails. They were fine in the end, but sadly several people died. Anyways, Loughborough's preaching yielded some fruit, some of it which happened much later on. 
such as one instance when after 24 years, two people in Reno, Nevada would hear Loughborough preach and say, hey, we heard you in Battle Creek. Cool, we're in. Even as late as 1914, there was a woman who felt called to join the Adventist church as a result of World War I. Choosing Adventist because she first heard J.N. Loughborough preach 60 years before in a tent in Battle Creek. Loughborough must have been a good preacher, at least a memorable one. One of the things we know about the guy is that people said they could hear his deep voice a half mile away. However far his voice actually carried, it was kind of a necessity in an age before microphones. So Loughborough and Cornell were a team. And they really were making this up as they went along. They began traveling all around the Midwest, starting in Michigan and then moving back east. They weren't sure if they could keep people's attention for more than a week, so they just covered the basics of what Adventists believed without getting too deeply into it. Of course, all of this wasn't free, so both men worked in the fields four days a week and preached on weekends. James suggested that they sell some of the tracts that the Review printed. That's all good and fine, but they had been struggling to even give the tracks away the past ten years. Nevertheless, they gave it a shot. There was no precedent here, unless you count the fact that Joseph Bates favored short meetings when he made forays into unknown territory. On one occasion, Loughborough debated a Methodist pastor, and when they discussed the foul change of the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday in the first few centuries A.D., a huge crowd turned out. They ended up selling $50 worth of tracks. I can just picture Loughborough and Cornell in the tent afterwards counting the money. So, when we try to give them away, no one will take them. When we try to sell them, we make all this money. Interesting. Eh, who cares? It worked. Ellen White prevailed on the men to change it from one week to six weeks, staying in one place and stop moving around so much. They tried that, and it worked marvelously. If you're wondering where Loughborough had been in 1855 and the first half of 1856, he's been in a tent. Of course, to haul this 60-foot tent around, he had the help of James White's horse, Charlie, and his wagon. There was one episode where they tried the Ford A River with Charlie, a risky move if you grew up playing Oregon Trail. Well, they hit a rock and got stuck in the middle of the river. John Loughborough may have been a lot of things, but he really wasn't a swimmer. He clinged for dear life to the wagon and pleaded with the horse, Charlie, you must get me out of this. To which the horse spoke audibly, Sure, man, no problem. Just kidding. Loughborough later wrote that the old horse gave him a pitiful glance and eventually pulled him out. Shortly after this episode, James White started fundraising in the review to buy Loughborough his own horse. Poor old Charlie. Loughborough's two years of tent meetings would abruptly stop in the summer of 1856, when he, too, moved his family to walk on Iowa. Weeks later, J.N. Andrews would stop preaching and also move to walk on. The problem was money. Remember that we said that all the while Loughborough was running around New York and Pennsylvania with the tent and preaching, that he had to work in the field four days in order to pay his way? Yeah, well, the $4 he received for working was chump change when you have a horse and wagon and are traveling all over New England. 
and that's especially true when you have a wife at home whom you barely see anymore. Loughborough and Cornell relied a lot on the free will gifts of people who came to hear him preach, who occasionally brought corn and meat, but really little else, and it was inconsistent. By the summer, his wife Mary had snapped. This is too much, she told him. We can't live this way any longer. J. N. Andrews had invited Loughborough to help him farm a small piece of land and walk on so their families could eat, and Loughborough accepted. So by the end of November, Andrews was a clerk in a general store in Walk-On. Loughborough went, thinking he would preach there, but when he got there, he found people on the frontier lived so far apart that it was impossible to get people together for a meeting. On top of that, everything out here was so expensive so he ended up spending his time as a carpenter. Andrews would later write that, In less than five years, I was utterly prostrated. They had to scrape every cent. They worked like dogs. There was always way more work out there than either of them could do. And the young movement's two most promising young preachers were out of action and burned out. Just burned out. There was a lot of good results of the movement moving west, but it now meant that essentially the same number of preachers and leaders had to cover not just New England and the surrounding area, but a territory that stretched from Maine to Iowa. Around the same time, James White began using the review to suggest that the Laodicean message of Revelation 3, that is, a message to indifferent, wishy-washy Christians, actually applied to themselves, the Sabbatarian Adventists, and not Joshua V. Himes' first-day Adventists, as they had previously applied it. This caused quite a bit of a stir, and it was a conclusion that Ellen White shared. To the Whites, and they were by no means alone, spiritual decay was setting in among the believers. The movement wasn't an intimate group of people who shared the same experience of 1844 anymore. It's akin to what the early church went through in the book of Acts. And it happens to every movement, every organization. Steve Jobs founded Apple with just a few people, but when it grew into this huge corporation in the 1980s, he just couldn't adjust. He, he wanted to lead a small team and build things that mattered. And he was increasingly frustrated with the incoming crop of employees who hadn't suffered through the early days with him, right? Who didn't have that Apple DNA forged in them. That's what happens, right? It's kind of how many people have always viewed the immigration question in America. If all of these people from all of these other countries with their own languages and customs and food come over here, will that threaten my core idea of what America is? So the question is, how can a company, a church, a nation, or whatever, maintain its DNA, its identity, during these periods of rapid growth? This wasn't just a philosophical question to toss around in business class, though. This was something they had to solve on the ground in the moment. The Whites didn't travel too far from Battle Creek in 1856, but they did go to Round Grove, Illinois, toward the end of the year. While the trip itself was a success, and the Whites were very much encouraged in the end by the believers there, Ellen White received a vision that eventually became part of her first volume of Testimonies for the Church. She writes that, quote, Through the past summer, the prevailing spirit has been to grasp as much of this world as they possibly could. End quote. She's referring to some of the Adventists, not by name, mind you, who had been rushing west in order to make money. 
she says that these people have worked on Sabbath. And again, she's not talking about everyone, but there's apparently enough of them that she's seeing this as a serious problem threatening the movement. She even accuses them of being so keen to barter and get a good deal with people that they are, quote, a proverb among the unbelievers, end quote. And that's not a good proverb either. She says that it is better to lose a little and exert a holier, happier influence with your business dealings. She also says that they are pinching pennies everywhere they can, but only to build up their own wealth, not to sacrifice for the cause like she and James and Bates and others had to do in the beginning. Generosity, she reminds them, begets generosity. The vision in Brown Grove also showed Ellen White something even worse, Wacon, Iowa. She wrote, quote, I was shown that the company of brethren in Wacon, Iowa needed help, that Satan's snare must be broken, and these precious souls rescued. My mind could not be at ease until we had decided to visit them, end quote. She should have added that she wouldn't let anyone else's mind be at ease either until they visited them. Well, this was December 1856, so it's not like they were just going to walk all the way to walk on. A sympathetic believer in Round Grove offered to take the Whites to walk on some 200 miles away and across the Mississippi River in his sleigh. Keep in mind, it's December. 200 miles, December. But before they set out, it had rained for about 24 hours, melting much of the snow, which you would think would be a good thing, but it's actually not if you're trying to take a sleigh. James was convinced that they had to give the whole idea up, but Ellen White would have none of it. She stayed up all night, distressed, watching the weather. Finally, around 5 a.m., that rain turned back into snow. They took off for walk-on but only got as far as Greenville, Illinois, before a storm came and delayed them for almost a week. They preached everywhere they stopped along the way, however, because, of course they did. When they got to the Mississippi, they had a real problem. They asked the locals about where they could cross, and they all said they wouldn't do it. It couldn't be crossed. It couldn't be done. The ice just wasn't thick enough, and more ominously, there was a thin layer of water running over the top of the ice, which is not a good sign. The guy who was taking the whites in his sleigh asked, well, is it Iowa or back to Illinois? They crossed, reaching Dubuque on December 20th. Ellen wrote that after they had crossed, people had told them stories about horses falling through the ice into the water and drowning, and their drivers jumping off at the last second onto the ice to be saved, and that no amount of money in the world could have tempted them to try to cross the river. By now, walk-on was only four days away. Ellen wrote to friends that this was, quote, the bitterest cold weather we have ever experienced, end quote. Welcome to Iowa, Ellen. On Christmas Eve, one year exactly after she had sprained her ankle, J.N. Loughborough was working on the roof of a house with another brother named Hosea Mead. Meade heard a voice he recognized from Round Grove, Illinois, and thought that's kind of strange, because Round Grove, Illinois is a long way away. Both Loughborough and Meade came down from the roof. There was Ellen White. "'What doest thou here, Elijah?' Ellen asked John Loughborough. The reference was to the moment in the Bible where Elijah ran away and hid, and God came and found him and asked him what he was doing in the middle of nowhere— 
when there was work to be done. Loughborough, however, missed the biblical reference entirely, it seems, and just replied, I am working with Brother Mead in carpentry work. Again, Ellen White asked, What doest thou here, Elijah? Loughborough was silent this time, thinking there was something to this. A third time, Ellen White said, What doest thou here, Elijah? Clearly, she didn't think Loughborough should be doing carpentry work with Brother Mead. That's all Ellen White needed to say. And Loughborough said later on that he was convinced he had to go back. He would later write that, quote, If these persons, meaning the Whites, had dropped upon us from the skies, they would hardly have astonished us more. The ground was covered in three feet of snow. For more than a week, all roads for 40 miles south of Wacon had been abandoned as impassable. End quote. He called this visit a Herculean task. The White stayed and held meetings in Wacon. They had come for everyone, by the way, not just Loughborough and Andrews, who had also responded to the call to return. Mary Loughborough remarked that she thought she and John had gone somewhere the Whites couldn't find them, but now she was glad they had come. There was a revival in Wacon as a result, as people awoke to their apathy. James White said that these meetings were the most powerful we had witnessed for years, and in many respects the most powerful we ever witnessed. End quote. There were tears and hugs all around, and there probably should have been some hot chocolate. It's not that Andrews and Loughborough didn't have legitimate complaints about having to work like dogs and barely get paid, but neither did they take those complaints to Battle Creek for any help, either. They simply quit. James, too, had been buried by problems. But in the end, his problems were resolved by that general conference that came together to meet. He didn't just quit. And I think that's where their problem was. Loughborough would write on January 1st, 1857, quote, I laid up my carpenter tools for good and said goodbye to our people in Wacon and started with the Whites for Illinois. Loughborough stayed behind when they passed back through Round Grove to preach there for three whole months. He received as his pay free room and board, a buffalo robe overcoat, and $10 to send back to his wife, which was less than what he had made before. Okay, so the money problem still needed to be solved. And who better to solve it than J. Ann Andrews? But first, the poison of Paris, Maine, is about to go after James White yet again. Oh, J. Ann Andrews, your father is something else. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 
2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.